definitely say I was pretty uh, awake when this patient rolled in. We had a little bit of notice beforehand. So what we had heard from EMS was basically a 20-year-old female had had a possible ingestion, had actually been arrested, initially was normal, and then became altered. EMS picked her up, and then she went into VTAC. So at that point, we all were pretty concerned, and we kind of talked about a plan of action. That was James Sahakis, rising fourth year in our residency, talking about a recent overdose case that came to him. I think we all get those calls over uh, the speaker or the phone that EMS is bringing somebody in. And uh, that type of call is definitely something that tightens our sphincter because we know that as soon as they roll in, we're going to be expected to move quickly and moments count and save lives. That's what we're going to talk about on today's episode of Talks Now. Going to bring back another segment that we used to do in terms of resident pearls, and hopefully some of our incoming house officers find it useful. Luckily enough, we had a toxicologist in the emergency department at Denver Health, and so we quickly all gathered and talked about a game plan. And she actually was able to provide some direction to EMS. And in light of an ingestion with VTAC, EMS had empirically given two amps of sodium bicarb. Yes, not even two minutes into the case, and we're already pulling out the sodium bicarb. And uh, experienced listeners know this, but hopefully the inexperienced listeners were ahead of James on this. When you get an ingestion with a wide complex tachycardia and altered mental status, ask yourself, where's the bicarb? And we'll talk more about that. With actually no real response. Patient still in VTAC, becoming progressively more somnolent. They were essentially bagging her on arrival. But she rolled in basically with a blood pressure of 70s over 30s, heart rate in the 160s, wide complex tachycardia. And she was comatose, not really responsive to pain, with probably six to eight respirations per minute. Before we get ahead of ourselves with pathophysiology and ACLS and toxicology, for you new learners out there, I think the biggest thing you have to ask yourself with any overdose, with any patient really, is sick or not sick. This one was sick. It, you know, it's interesting. We have a lot of ingestions. And like you said, you can almost become jaded because you have so many that turn out to be nothing. But this one, we, we knew from the start this was going to be a sickie. So when she came in, you know, we it was kind of a, a flurry of activity as it always is with a sick patient. And so we're trying to get her on the monitor, get her hooked up to pulse ox, get her on blood pressure. EMS is giving us their report. And we're talking about, okay, we're going to probably continue pushing sodium bicarbonate. And like this is most likely a TCA overdose, given the fact that she is a wide complex tachycardia. Thinking back to what we're taught, the real basics, ABCs. In an ingestion patient that rolls in with her GCS was definitely depressed, pretty much unresponsive to pain. I think she was probably a three. When that kind of patient rolls in, you obviously want to think about airway. Um, so you put her on BiPAP. <laughs> so we actually did not. <laughs> but we immediately thought about pre-oxygenating and thinking this is a patient that's not going to protect her airway. If she's comatose from an ingestion, then we need to go ahead and manage that for her. Absolutely. See, so it's not that much different from many sick patients. Don't forget about the ABCs. This is not the kind of patient that you're going to go running for the charcoal or the gastric lavage tube. You first do want to control their airway and control their hemodynamics. So when she first arrived, we basically put pads on her as we do with un any unstable arrhythmia. We made sure that we ob obtained a second line for IV access. We were pre-oxygenating in anticipation of, of an intubation. And we attempted additional sodium bicarbonate, 
but persisted with this wide complex tachycardia. We also gave her 50 micrograms of phenylephrine in anticipation of trying to get some improved blood pressure before intubation. Now, you can hear James' voice sort of go up during this comment, because whenever you mention pressors, you can start an argument over the breast presser to use in each case, epi, norepi. We know the answer is never dopamine, but we're going to skip some of the details, but at the end of the day, try to choose the appropriate presser that seems to match the type of shock that your patient has, what's their heart doing, what's their SVR, things like that. And once again, no dopamine. No, absolutely. And I mean, with more and more data coming out about peri-intubation hypotension, and certainly everyone's got a case of peri-intubation arrest, especially in a patient who might have some acid-base disturbance and things like that, always plan ahead. And then we go ahead and intubate successfully RSI. And afterwards, we're still puzzling this persistent wide complex tachycardia and hypotension. Yeah. Yeah. What's up with that? I mean, this is the part in the movies where everybody's cheering. You've intubated the patient. You've given them uh, what you think is the appropriate antidote. The board examiner is supposed to tell you that the patient's QRS narrows and the patient does fine, but that doesn't seem to be happening here. And this is why some of our best stories aren't such great for cocktail parties, because this is a head scratcher. This is something that makes you go, huh. But as a teacher, these can be some of my favorite cases because you can start to see the learner's uh, gears turn and that frustration really grabs them and makes them want to solve the puzzle. It's interesting because normally we think, okay, we're just going to cardiovert, unstable VTAC, you know, turn your brain off, cardiovert. However, in this patient, it's unlikely to be successful if you think it's from a toxicologic exposure. So we gave it a shot, but there was not a response. We basically did our cardioversion, 200 joules, no response. She's still in the wide complex tachycardia. So we persisted with additional sodium bicarbonate. So she's gotten four amps, two pre-hospital, two from us. She gets another two. So she's at a total of six amps of sodium bicarb, still wide, still scratching our heads. We did try a bolus of amiodarone. Um, oh, I was going to ask about that. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you know, Again, if you move down your unstable VTAC algorithm, you're going to start thinking about your antiarrhythmics, given something like amiodarone. In retrospect, I wish we had pulled lidocaine off the shelf. So we're going to forgive uh, Dr. Sahakas here. And uh, you heard a little bit of laughing and joshing about amiodarone, because this is why it's so important to be prepared for these types of overdoses. Because even though there is a lot of overlap with standard resuscitation and standard ACLS, there are some divergences. And it's important to know why you're giving a particular drug. And anhydrosmics can be really confusing. Classically, we used to use the uh, Von Williams system, and that's still kind of handy for shorthand for discussion. But when you're talking about treating uh, this type of arrhythmia, you actually want to avoid the class three antidysrhythmics like amiodarone because they can prolong the QT interval and can be uh, contraindicated for a number of reasons, and they're not going to treat the uh, underlying issue. Similarly, a lot of resources recommend avoiding class 1A antidysrhythmics like quinidine or procainamide, as well as class 1C like flecainide and propafenone because they are very much like TCAs in terms of their sodium channel effects, can uh, worsen uh, that sodium channel inhibition and worsen cardiotoxicity. But the question then is, why would you give lidocaine? Because we know that lidocaine is also a sodium channel blocker. And James saves it here by coming up with some great explanation. 
Lidocaine. Lidocaine may have been the better choice with the thought that it's a fast-acting sodium channel blocker that potentially could displace some of your TCA and then itself come off of the sodium channel and hopefully let additional sodium through to try and combat this sodium channel blockade. There we go. Dr. Tsahakis for the score, for the goal. And I'm just going to repeat essentially what he just said just to make myself sound smart. No, absolutely. Actually, that's a good point. And just to kind of reiterate that point behind that. So it seems like most pharmacists hate amiodarone. Most critical care docs and other docs hate amiodarone, but we can't kill it. Amiodarone won't die. (laughs) And so you say, well, wait, if somebody's got sodium channel blockade, why would I give them another sodium channel blocker? And kind of what you just hinted at is, well, it might bind and it's fast off. So maybe it gives enough time to decrease lethality. And there are some studies that suggest that. So one of the subtleties of toxicology, one of the fun things of actually, you know, you see it happen in a rat and then you see it happen in a person and, uh, and you feel good about that. And I wanted to remind you that uh, ToxNow is made possible with support from the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology. I also wanted to give you an update on an upcoming episode with uh, Dr. Jason Woods, a pediatric EM doc on the Anschutz Medical Campus. And our next episode is actually going to be a joint episode with his new podcast. And on that one, we're going to be talking about kids and marijuana. Uh, what could be more fun than that? So excited to, uh, to have Jason Woods on the show for a joint podcast with his new venture. But now let's get back to this case and try to find out what ultimately fixed this broken patient. This was one of those patients that we, you know, we knew we, the sodium bicarbonate was going to be our workhorse. So that was going to be the primary drug that we would give. But in absence of a response after six amps, you know, we were really reaching for anything else that might help get her out of this arrhythmia. Electricity didn't work. Amiodarone didn't work, but we gave it. And then we also considered magnesium. And mag, I think, was a, maybe a little bit more reasonable choice in her as well, not just for unstable VTAC, but with concern for, was is it any chance that this was a prolonged QT-induced polymorphic VTAC? If you look at her cardiograms, it's monomorphic, doesn't look like torsades. However, in retrospect, we found out the patient was taking methadone as well, which is a notorious QT prolonger. So giving mag, in my mind, had no harm and potential benefit. That's true. The one flip side of that, though, is with a lot of these patients, if if they have a long QT, it's often because they have a long QRS. And so honestly, and we'll probably, we'll dive into the electrophysiology of this in a little bit, but just make sure when you look at something and you're asking yourself, why is it long? Is it long because the overall QT, the distance between the two waves is longer, or is it long because the QRS is wider? And as a consulting physician on the phone, I have definitely been almost lied to when someone tells me about the QT and doesn't mention the QRS. And then the other thing is, because these people are usually very tachycardic, right, because of the anticholinergic effects of the TCAs, the odds of them having a QT prolonged induced torsades is fairly low, right? Because one of the treatments, one of the first things you could do, if you see someone who is slow and long in terms of their QT, one of the first treatments you could do, aside from MAG and everything else, is speeding them up. Sure. So I'm not sure if that got through. I tend to talk fast when I get excited. But essentially, I was shutting James down a little bit on the mag and the long QT theory as the patient was already so tachycardic that uh, 
Tori Sods from Long QT was very unlikely. And then I think most importantly for some of you out there, if you get excited by a Long QT because that's what you happen to look for first, just be aware that by definition, a Long QRS is going to give you a Long QT and often have different ion causes, different channel causes. And so always make sure if you see a Long QT that you ask yourself, is that because the QRS in and of itself is very long? Long QRS, think sodium channels. Long QT, think potassium, calcium, and sometimes magnesium. But as often happens with toxicology, magnesium in this patient may be the right answer and not necessarily for the reasons that we've already talked about. So oftentimes, uh, it's the great thing about emergency medicine. You can be wrong and still be right. And I think we're going to find out more about that. After the magnesium goes in, the patient starts to narrow. And again, I don't imply causation here. I think it was more likely that she had finally gotten a total of six amps of bicarb and was responding to both raising her pH and that sodium load that we were giving her. But in any case, it was quite a, uh, a relaxing moment when she finally came out of this unstable arrhythmia, narrowed into a sinus rhythm, and actually started to perfuse herself, uh, or excuse me, started to have a better perfusing blood pressure with a systolic in the 90s. And so why magnesium in TCA overdose? So there is some uh, limited data that suggests in patients with TCA overdose who are refractory to aggressive sodium bicarb and pressors that they might benefit from uh, mag sulfate IV. There's a nice randomized trial from Emam Hadi from 2012 that we'll put a link to on our site that shows improved outcomes when you add mag sulfate to the sodium bicarb. So not something that should be used for everyone, but something to maybe keep in your back pocket as in this case. Now, why might that work? It's a little bit unclear. The theory in that paper suggests that magnesium is an important cofactor for the sodium-potassium ATPase and helps maintain intracellular potassium, and so that magnesium might be able to help treat this. And regardless of how much hand-waving you seem to do, in this particular case, this N of 1, it seemed like the magnesium maybe helped a bit. And of course, there's always room for further study for those of you out there looking for a good project. But before we jump to magnesium and before you go home thinking that the main treatment for TCA toxicity is magnesium, let's jump back to the mainstay of treatment, which is sodium bicarb. And you'll find that typically the standard treatment is an amp of sodium bicarb, so 50 milliequivalents of sodium bicarb administered. And if that doesn't work to narrow the QRS, then you're going to repeat that maybe every three to five minutes. And there's a couple reasons as to why we think sodium bicarb works so well for these types of overdoses. My understanding is that you get kind of two big effects from sodium bicarbonate. One is you actually get a sodium load. So if you think about every amp has 50 milliequivalents of sodium in it, that's about a third of a bag of saline. So if you give three amps, you've essentially just given the equivalent of a liter of NS in that sodium concentration. And my thought is that if you give a significant amount of sodium, you can't necessarily outcompete the sodium channel blockade. However, if you imagine that there are still some sodium channels in your cardiac myocytes that are unaffected and there are some that are basically intermittently blocked, 
when they are open or when they are not blocked by a TCA, you can actually get more sodium through that sodium channel and, in essence, try and overcome the blockade by rushing more sodium through the channels that are still open. Does that, does that, that make sense? That makes total sense. And that's one of those cases where I think we could spend two hours talking about the specific st- structure of the uh, sodium channel and uh, specific electrophysiologic studies that have been done in cells. But at the end of the day, if someone has a sodium channel blocker, consider trying to get more sodium. If someone has a calcium channel blocker, consider, at least at first, trying to get a little calcium into them. Don't overthink it too much. Makes sense. The other big mechanism behind giving sodium bicarbonate is to raise the pH. And so in my mind, this can have a couple of positive effects. But one is that if you think about the sodium channel blocker TCA, it's basically a weak base. And if you end up raising your serum pH, then you theoretically are going to put more of it in the unionized form, that TCA. And hopefully that more of that unionized form is going to become protein bound. So TCAs are largely protein bound. And if you can try and increase that fraction of species that is actually available to be bound by a protein, theoretically, you're going to bind up more your drug. Less of it will be out there to hurt your heart. There you go, people. That's it. He just said it. Uh, I think I'm done. I think that just proves we train good people. And uh, I don't think there's anything else I ever need to teach anyone else because of that. But just to jump back to that before I start to get hate mail, while the uh, alkalinization increasing protein binding of TCAs has been a popular theory for a long time, there's also some animal data that disputes that a little bit. Essentially, when they added another protein that strongly binds TCAs to these TCA-poisoned rats, they really didn't find huge benefits. So that partially punctured a hole in that. The flip side is amitriptyline-poisoned patients have had some anecdotal improvement with lipid emulsion therapy, and one of the leading theories behind that is binding. And there's even some more hand-waving in that alkalinizing the serum can shift the TCA to the neutral state, which is more lipophilic, and that might move it into the cell membrane away from the sodium channel, so that even though it doesn't necessarily lead to increased protein binding, it might still keep it away from the channel. At the end of the day, there's still a leading theory that alkalinization really helps and possibly shifts the toxic TCA away from the sodium channel. In your looking into it or in the case, did anyone say, okay, we're not getting enough sodium into her. We need a higher concentration form of sodium other than sodium bicarb. Did anyone suggest that? So we actually didn't. And I I wonder if we had, you know, after our total of six amps of sodium bicarb, we had given 300 milliequivalents of sodium. But at that point, if we had actually reached potential alkalosis, let's say you get a gas back and the pH is is getting pretty high, 7.5, 7.55, you don't want to ride that any higher, but potentially you could try and push the sodium higher with something just like uh, hypertonic saline. And once again, I am just tickled with James's knowledge here. And I realized that we actually got a little bit of ahead of ourselves because the vast majority of TCA exposed patients that you see are not going to present like this. They're not going to present with an unstable arrhythmia. So one of the important things to talk about when you're talking about treating someone who has an exposure or an overdose to a TCA like amitriptyline is to know before they go into the arrhythmia, what are the indications for pulling out the bicarb? And those of you who know these forwards and backwards, please skip. But those of you uh, junior learners, I would um, ask you to remember some of these numbers that we are about to talk about. If she had presented earlier, if she had taken less, and realistically are the majority of the patients we'll see, then 
there are things we look on in the EKG. Every single time I look at a tox EKG, literally every single time, these are the main things I'm looking for. Because when you have a sick patient who comes in sick, you know you're going to resuscitate them and hopefully you're going to get the right antidote. You have a patient who looks well, you want to be able to predict who's going to get sick. And so, yeah, so let's dive in. She had come in sooner, taken less. The thing you'd be looking for on the EKG is exactly that, terminal RNAVR. Yeah, so looking for the terminal R, looking for the QRS duration and saying, is she already beginning to widen out? Other, help me out. What other kind of things should I be well, looking for? Were there any numbers that you saw in your, either in that the toxicologist discussed or in your preparation? Sure. So we're classically taught a wide QRS as anything over 120 or greater than three little boxes. But specifically, when we look at a wide QRS that's greater than something like 155, 160, then we can be a little bit more confident that it's probably having to do with sodium channel blockade. Uh, yeah. So to, just to drill down a little bit, many of the references talk about how the literature shows that in the setting of a TCA overdose, you're not going to see any seizures or dysrhythmias in patients whose QRS remains less than 100 milliseconds. Although that's pretty narrow. I mean, that's honestly a lot of people just right now, my QRS is probably wider than 100 milliseconds. And then they found that there was a 50% incidence of ventricular dysrhythmia among patients with a QRS greater than 160. And no uh, ventricular dysrhythmia has occurred in patients with a QRS less than 160. So then other people have looked at the terminal R in AVR and sometimes at the ratio of that to the S wave. And some evidence suggests that having a terminal R in AVR of 3 millimeters and a ratio of R to S of 0.7 is going to be very good at predicting risk of seizures and dysrhythmias, possibly even equivalent or better than a QRS of 100. And so at the end of the day, the arrhythmia and seizures tend to happen at longer QRSs, but because these are people that can rapidly progress, they can rapidly go from a QRS of 110 to a QRS of 170, a lot of recommendations are based on early treating. And so if you call most poison control centers, a lot of them will say, if you have concern for a TCA and they look like a TCA and the QRS is greater than 100, consider a trial of an amp of sodium bicarb. Makes sense. Don't wait for them to go into VTAC. See if you can get ahead of it. Right. The flip side is you're the provider bedside, and it's, that's, that's why it's also great to have some kind of tox-trained person bedside because if their heart rate is 70 and they have normal mentation and their QRS is 110, that's probably not someone that I'm going to do a trial on, but someone who, if you're just focused on the QRS and the absence of everything else, you might inappropriately treat. So just to reiterate, I want to say that was a great discussion about a very sick patient that the whole healthcare team provided care for. If you see someone who presents after an overdose that's tachycardic and altered, consider a tricyclic antidepressant, possibly amitriptyline. Definitely get an EKG, look for QRS widening, be concerned if the QRS is greater than 100, or if you're seeing that big terminal R in AVR. And uh, certainly the first treatment is going to be an amp of sodium bicarb, which you can repeat a few times, and you should hopefully see narrowing. If that isn't working, consider the hypertonic saline as an adjunct to give additional sodium. If you are having uh, a ventricular arrhythmia, consider lidocaine over amiodarone. At the same time, continue to give excellent ACLS care with airway support and pressors, direct-acting Pressors, and uh, though we didn't mention it here, TCAs are also an indication to consider lipid emulsion and also to consider ECMO if you have that at your institution. 
And uh, I want to applaud James's participation on the show today and great care for this patient. Uh, I'm going to end the show with a quote of his that he said that I'm taking completely out of context, but I really enjoy because it, it seems to summarize our obsession as toxicologists with sodium bicarb. Well, you know the saying, the young doctor has many different drugs to treat one condition, and the seasoned doctor has one drug to treat many different conditions. I like to think of the toxicologist as the seasoned doctors of emergency medicine, and they can treat a variety of different conditions with seemingly one drug. Sometimes it's just sodium bicarb. Well, that does it for another exciting episode of Talks Now. I'm Matt Zuckerman, your host, assistant professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine at the Anschutz Medical Campus. I want to thank James Tsahakis for joining us today. If you want more information or to check out the articles we referenced, check us out on the web at TalksNow.org or on our Twitter feed at TalksNow, T-O-X-N-O-W. Always welcome to email us, TalksNow at TalksNow.org. And if you want to leave some comments or feedback or share the podcast with others, we appreciate your rating and feedback in iTunes and the iTunes store. That's how a lot of people find us. I'm Matt Zuckerman, signing off. Talks Now is produced by Matt Zuckerman with support from the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology. You can reach out to us by emailing us at talksnow at talksnow.org. That's T-O-X-N-O-W or via our Facebook page or tweet us at Talks Now. Talks Now.